I want to read the scripture text for this morning's sermon. And uh, we are in a sermon series, what the Bible is all about. Hopefully we're getting a feel for the overarching big story of God's and where we fit in that big story. And this morning we're going to think together about what it means to be family multi-generationally. And uh, I want to read as the text this scripture from Genesis 25, beginning in verse 19. It focuses on Jacob, but it sort of just uh, sprays out in every direction as we'll explore this morning. Beginning in Genesis 25, 19. This is the family tree of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram. She was the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed hard to God for his wife because she was barren. God answered his prayer and Rebekah became pregnant. But the children tumbled and kicked inside her so much that she said, if this is the way it's going to be, why go on living? She went to find to God to find out what was going on. And God told her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples butting heads while still in your body. One people will overpower the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time to give birth came, sure enough, there were twins in her womb. The first came out reddish, as if snugly wrapped in a hairy blanket. They named him Esau, Harry. His brother followed, his fist clutched tight to Esau's heel. They named him Jacob, Heel. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. The boys grew up. Esau became an expert hunter and outdoorsman. Jacob was a quiet man, preferring life indoors among the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he loved his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One day, Jacob was cooking stew. Esau came in from the field, starved. Esau said to Jacob, give me some of that red stew. I'm starved. That's how he came to be called Edom, red. Jacob said, make me a trade, my stew for your rights as the firstborn. Esau said, I'm starving. What good is a birthright if I'm dead? Jacob said, first, swear to me. And he did. On oath, Esau traded away his rights as the firstborn. Jacob gave him bread and the stew of lentils. He ate and drank, got up and left. That's how Esau shrugged off his rights as the firstborn. Let's pray together. God, we come to uh, worship you because we're broken and we need lots of help. Uh, We read about the families in the Bible and we read about their pride and their rebellion and their short-sightedness and their conniving and, and we can identify with all of that. We ask you, God, to do a work in our hearts that would really cleanse us and and yet also give us hope to know that we are your children, that your family is very special to you. We're also burdened this morning for a world that needs the prayers of faithful Christians. We pray for Ferguson, Missouri, in that community, and for the funeral service tomorrow for Michael Brown. We pray, God, for that community and all of our nation to experience healing. While we pray for racial uh, reconciliation, that there might be a healing in our nation. We also pray a prayer of thanksgiving for law enforcement, for people who put their lives on the line every day to protect our peace and defend our rights. 
We pray for troubled spots around the world and for all of our military uh, personnel and their families. We ask, God, that you bless the mission of First Baptist Church, that we can be the light and the salt, that we can be a difference in this community and in this world. And we want to be passionate, God, about that, that calling you've placed on us to make that difference, to be the very presence of Jesus Christ. So bless us with understanding about Scripture and then take all that we are and make it something useful for you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's that framing quote again that uh, we opened worship with just a little while ago of, by the late, great Kenneth Chafin. We are all shaped by family, and we are all looking for family. Both of those things are true, right? We're all shaped by family, and by the way, that could be good or bad shaping, that good or bad influence, right? We're all shaped by family positively or negatively. And in the process of, of recognizing that, we are all in the process of, of looking for family, family biologically or family church or family uh, friends at school or friends at work or some neighborhood friends. We're all looking for those sense of connections. And so uh, I think that statement is a, is a great way for us to frame the whole conversation. We are all shaped by family, and we're all looking for family. And that's true in every story you read in the Bible about individuals and about families. It's certainly true about the scripture that I read a moment ago from Genesis 25 about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by the way, if you're paying attention, the A-plus students, the really sharp ones, they'll notice this is the third sermon this summer that references Jacob. Uh, Jim Hill uh, preached on Jacob in July, and I've preached on Jacob earlier in August. And some of you who notice that say, well, what's the deal? We're kind of uh, in a rut here. But really, if you stop and think about it, Jacob is important because his other name is Israel. So you've got to believe, right, if somebody's name uh, is changed from Jacob to Israel, he must be a pretty important person in Scripture. Plus, Jacob is so representative of stuff that we all experience uh, in life. And the other thing I want to point out is we're not just focusing on Jacob this morning. We're sort of clicking on Jacob and then expanding the map of the Bible, and we're looking at lots of people besides Jacob, but sort of Jacob as the, as the anchor around all of that. And so with that in mind, I want to show you this family tree. Uh, that's an important family tree. Uh, and one of the things we want to do when, uh, in this sermon series on what the Bible is all about is to help us all see how these stories fit chronologically into the bigger, grander narrative of God. And so Abraham, historians debate this, whether Abraham lived uh, in, in around 2000 B.C. or was it closer to 1750 B.C.? That's quite a range, but that's about the best we can do. But we do know this. Uh, this is really the beginning of biblical history, Genesis 12. And what you see on the screen takes us from Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the book of Genesis. The rest of the book of Genesis, starting with Abraham, deals with the families you see up here, and, uh, and they really set the stage for the rest of the uh, First Testament, the Old Testament of Scripture. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis we sort of talked about last week. That's almost like prehistory because we don't have dates to fix. That's sort of in the mist, in the mist before uh, people were marking time, but uh, we talked about that. But, but today, Genesis 12, and what you see on the screen, Abraham, father of Isaac, 
father of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons, and out of those 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, A couple of changes there, because Levi and Joseph didn't have a tribe named after them. Uh, Minor details that we won't get bogged down in this morning. But the point is, that's how all of that fits together. And God started with a chosen couple, Abraham and Sarah, a chosen family, the clan you see on the screen, a chosen nation, Israel, and out of that chosen nation, God blessed all the peoples of the earth. You need to remember that family tree. I'm going to leave it up most of the sermon uh, and so that you can kind of get that burned in your consciousness that that's an important uh, way of, of how we're going to handle everything this morning. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take that family tree and I want to shake that family tree and I want to see what fruit falls to the ground or perhaps to see what nuts fall out of the tree. Because this is real life. Thank you, Tony. Boy, you're good. He's with me. You're my buddy forever. You laugh at my jokes. Uh, So there's this family uh, that needs to have its tree looked at carefully uh, because it's it's very, very interesting. Now, the first thing that shakes out of the tree is the story that uh, I read to you just a little uh, a few minutes ago uh, from the message translation that tells about Jacob. You, you see where he is in that, in that line, Jacob or Israel. Now, he's a, he's a sneak. He's a snake. He's, he's deceitful. He's always looking out for himself. He's always trying to, to gain an advantage. He, he cheats his brother out of birthright because uh, Jacob is, is the indoor type, and he's cooking this wonderful meal. His brother Esau, the hunter, comes in. He's starved. He's famished. He says, I've got to have some food. And Jacob never misses a chance to exploit someone else's weakness. Jacob never misses a chance to exploit someone else's need. How can I turn this to my advantage? He says, oh, okay, you can have some of my soup. Uh, just, just sign over to me all the privileges of firstborn. And they were amazing privileges in that era, in that culture, a lot of responsibilities, but a lot of privileges socially, politically, economically. He said, just do that and you can have all the soup you want. And, you know, Esau, very short-sighted, says, hey, man, uh, if I'm dead, the birthright doesn't do me any good. So, yeah, just, just give me the stew. I'll sign it over. It won't matter. And, of course, it mattered. But Jacob had been the trickster. That's the first thing you see shaking out of the family tree. Now, I think it's kind of fun and funny that later on in chapter 29, Jacob uh, gets tricked himself. Jacob uh, falls in love with Rachel, and he wants to marry her, and he goes to her father to ask for her hand in marriage, and her father says, yeah, you can have my daughter in marriage if you work for me for seven years. And Jacob said, I'll do that. I'll I'll work for, for you for seven years. And the scripture says very romantically, Violins playing in the background. The seven years seemed to him but a day. He was so in love with Rachel. I mean, can't you just hear love as a mini-splendored thing or some great ballad playing in the background? And, and man, that's, that's juicy romantic. But then Rachel's father plays a trick on Jacob. He tricks him through an elaborate ruse so that Jacob has to work a neck, another seven years. He has to work 14 years to marry the woman he wants. But when that happens, Jacob's all indignant. Well, that's not fair. You cheated me. Duh. How's it feel to get some of your own medicine? He says, that's just not right. You 
not doing something you said you were going to do. Well, Jacob, welcome to the world that, that you've been forcing on others. And he's all indignant, but the trickster became the one trick. The cheater became the cheatee. He got cheated and it didn't feel so good. Shift the scene now. Genesis 34, many, many more years later, Jacob's married. He has lots of children, right? And sorry to be sexist, but the Bible basically talks about the males because the the line came through the males. That was that culture and time. But he also had a daughter named Dinah. And tragically, in chapter 34, the scripture says that Jacob's daughter Dinah was brutally raped by Shechem. Jacob was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken at what had happened. Two of his sons, Dinah's brothers, were more than heartbroken. They were angry. Levi and Simeon, one was a little older than Dinah, one was a little uh, younger than Dinah. You can imagine they were the brothers that she felt closest to, and they were the ones that had that protective big brother, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this right, uh, you, you violated my sister. So they go out, and they don't just seek justice, they seek revenge. They kill Shechem. They not only kill Shechem, they kill all the males in the city where he lived. You see the escalation of violence? You see how violence escalates? You start here and it just, and it just cranks up into something worse and then somebody does something worse back. And, and Jacob was upset. Jacob was, was angry. He said to his sons, you're going to start a war with that city. We can't afford that right now. And don't you imagine his sons looked at him and said, Well, Daddy, guess where we learned to take things into our own hands? Dad, guess where we learned to just get what we wanted and and let let the chips fall where they may? Dad, guess where we learned to just push our own way? But Jacob's heartache isn't done. You see up there... uh, On the far right, next to the last Joseph, the next to the youngest son, Jacob's favorite. And Jacob let everybody know, even his other sons know, Joseph is my favorite. Spoiled him. And Joseph was pretty obnoxious. He was in the face of his brothers, flaunting it that he was his daddy's pet. And he'd say these really unaware things like, I had this dream where I was ruling over you guys. I don't know what that's about, but isn't that funny? And his brothers went, that's not funny. And they hated him. And when they had a chance, they were so jealous of Joseph that they sold him into slavery. But they made up this story. They, they put blood all over Joseph's coat, brought it back to uh, their dad, Jacob, and said, Dad, we think a wild animal killed Joseph. And Jacob believed his son was dead, and he just wept and grieved and mourned for years. And ladies and gentlemen, that ruse, that lie was held by that family, by those brothers, for years and years and years. And it was not until many years later, Joseph, still alive, was the prime minister in Egypt during a time of famine, and his own family came to him for food that they discovered what had become of him and that their dad discovered the lie that his sons had told to cover up their brutal deed of giving their son away, their brother away to slavery. 
All those family secrets came bubbling up until there was ultimately resolution. And that really takes you to the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50. Now, I want to push the pause button right here. I want to push the pause button, and I want us to take a breath, and I want us to think about all we've heard and all we've thought and all we've experienced in this part of the Bible story. Some of you are acquainted with uh, the phrase family systems theory. Uh, If you've had psychology courses or business management courses, uh, counseling, you, you know that Family systems theory is this idea that no, one, no one's behavior or conduct or life ever happens in isolation to itself, that we're all connected in this interweb of relationships, that everything I am, everything I do is a product of the larger network of family and systems, thus family systems theory. And that's true whether it's work or church or biological family or whatever. Now, think about that as you look at that family tree. Everything we know about these people is in relation to everything else and all the other people on that screen. Well, sometimes counselors will do what's called a genogram. When they're counseling a client, they'll they'll say, let's do a genogram. Let's do your family tree, but let's do the genogram beside the names on the family tree Let's list the family themes. Let's list the family secrets. Let's list the family sins. Let's name the family assumptions, the rules, the spoken rules and the unspoken rules of family. And let's get all that on a piece of paper on this family tree that then becomes a genogram so we begin to understand who we are and why we do some of the things we do. It's pretty fascinating. Now, Peter Scazzaro has written a book entitled The Emotionally Healthy Church. The staff and I have been studying this for about three years. Uh, We uh, are currently leading some church leaders through this book And uh, we plan to do that again next year, a larger uh, circle of people to read the book. It's one of those tough reads that you have to put down and process for a while before you can pick it up and read again. But in the book, Peter Scazzaro, who's a pastor, says that what's happened to followers of Jesus is that we have large chunks of our lives and of our past that we've never exposed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We have family secrets, we have family junk, we have family themes that we've never acknowledged and brought out to the light of day so that the Lordship of Jesus Christ can shine on those things and somehow become Lord of those things and heal those things. He says, you can't can't let Jesus help you with it until you acknowledge it's there. And that's why he talks about genograms and family trees because those kinds of things have to be honestly faced. For example... Let's go back to the family tree slide, and I want to show you something. Of what I've just told you about the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph stories, what common themes, if you were sitting down with a family member, what common themes would you mark out in the genogram? Well, first of all, deceit, 
lying, and manipulation. That's one, right? I mean, even before Jacob started lying, Abraham lied early in Genesis. He said Sarah was his, his sister instead of his wife. And then that, that lying and manipulation was carried on, and Jacob, of course, lied, uh, manipulated to get the family uh, inheritance, and, and lied uh, about the, the dad's blessing and all these other lies. His future father-in-law lied to him. Lies from Joseph's brothers about Joseph being killed when he was really alive. Lies, lies, lies. Lies and manipulation. That's the first theme. Second theme, favoritism, where a parent favors one child over another. Jacob's mother uh, favored him. Esau's father, Isaac, favored him. So you have twin boys and each parent is favoring the other child. Does that not set up family chaos? And then it's repeated. Jacob has a favorite in Joseph, which creates the, the cycle of violence that leads to tragedy. So you've got lying and manipulation. You've got parents having favorites. And then that quickly leads to sibling rivalry and jealousy. That's the third theme that's all through this family tree. Sibling rivalry and jealousy, which leads to the fourth thing, which is grudge-bearing, getting even, and violence. We'll just lump those all together. Grudge-bearing, getting even, and violence. That's the genogram of the Bible's family tree. Those are our spiritual heirs, our, our spiritual ancestors. Now, I want to go on record as saying that this family tree is blighted. This family tree has Dutch elm disease. But then don't we all? Would you really want your family tree up here on the screen? All of our family trees are messy. And I want to go on record as saying something else. I think the phrase, dysfunctional family, is overused and tired and needs to be retired. And I'm guilty. I've used that phrase a lot. Well, you know, she comes from a dysfunctional family. Well, you know, he comes from a dysfunctional family. I think it's, it's a tired phrase. It's used too much, and we need to retire it. And here's why. To use the phrase dysfunctional family is to imply there's such a thing as a functional family. Thank you. I don't think there's such a thing as a functional family. We're all dysfunctional. And to say dysfunctional family is to imply that mine is not. I mean, I think about the husband I am not sometimes, the way I don't put my wife's needs first, don't love her as I should. I think about the mistakes I made when our children were growing up. I was either physically or mentally not present. I was impatient. I wasn't always the role model I should be. Didn't always pass along the right values. All the mistakes I made. And I have to tell you, I take a, a perverse pleasure in all these nasty stories from Genesis. And you know why I take a perverse pleasure from these stories? Because I'm thinking if God can use that mess... God can use me. If God 
can take that diseased family tree and bring about global redemption, there's hope for us. This is the, this is the family that brought salvation to the world. American Christianity is here. Asian Christianity, South American Christianity, all over the world. We wouldn't be here if it, if it were not for this motley crew. This mess. There's hope for us. God used this family so God can use our family. In his book, um, Schizero in the Emotionally Healthy Church, he, he talks about you have to acknowledge the mess of your own family tree and then consciously take part in a re-rooting of the tree. Rooting are as, as in R-O-O-T-I-N-G. Uh, that is to say, you can't change the fruit till you change the root. So that, that brings a brand new meaning to the John chapter 3, being born again. It's no longer being born again individually, but being born into a new family. That is to say that through Jesus Christ, we can go through reparenting. We can be born into a new spiritual family so that life can be different. The the message is that the power of Jesus Christ in resurrection can change us. We don't have to be the way the family's been. There's There's not a fatalism about this that that's because that's the way my family's been that I'm doomed to repeat it. We don't have to repeat those cycles of failure. Through Jesus Christ, we can be different. That's what it means to be reparented into a new family. So we don't get by by saying, well, you know, I'm sorry I have a bad temper, but that's just the Johnson side of my family coming through. Well, that's just the, the, the Johnson genes, you know, that's, that's just the way I am. We, we don't get by with that. Nor can we say, well, I'm this way because my parents did thus and so. Uh, I'm this way because my parents did not do thus and so. You see, in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of Jesus Christ, we can make that family tree different. We are not captive to our past. Through Jesus Christ, life can be transformed. We're not held hostage by it. John Updike uh, wrote a powerful novel entitled In the Beauty of the Lilies. It's a saga of uh, four generations that span the 20th century. And uh, it's the, the, the first generation starts with Clarence, a preacher of the gospel. Uh, and he loses his faith. He didn't have anything to pass on to anybody. And so Updike explores this theme of what happens when one generation does not have faith to pass on to the next generation, which does not have faith to pass on to the next, which does not have faith to pass on to the next. And the answer is, what you have is a lot of emptiness and a lot of loneliness. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that it doesn't have to be that way. That through the power of Jesus Christ, at any time, the family tree's poisonous fruit can be interrupted and replaced. We are all shaped by family, and we are all looking for family. And through Jesus Christ, God can work in us, and God can use our family.
all of our families. You believe that? Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for working in our lives and